Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I guess there's still time to go to the what's next event.com website and check out, uh, you know, sign up for. Um, pay fealty to learn more about um, our big event that's coming next week. Uh, that's what's next event.com. So um, as you might tell, I'm pretty exhausted. This was a, um, <laughs> this was a long week. Uh, longest month I ever spent was election week. Um, and uh, I had to get up crazy early to do NPR this morning. And because I got up crazy early, because I needed to get up crazy early, I have this weird habit of not being able to sleep if I've set an alarm for myself and I wake up anywhere like an hour or so before the alarm is supposed to go off. It's a really weird thing. And, uh, it's not so much that I'm afraid I'm going to oversleep the alarm, but that I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to get back to sleep in time to get any rest before the alarm goes off. It's a, it's a, it's a weird thing inside my head that probably I don't need to share with any of you. So I'll stop sharing it. Um, so it's, 5 39 p.m. on Friday night. And um, as far as I can tell right now, it is all but assured that Joe Biden will be uh, the next president of the United States. He's got, you know, last time I looked at the map, something like nine different paths to get to 270. And Trump had three. And Biden's were all, not all, but a lot of them were probable. And uh, almost all of Trump's were improbable. So I'm no longer going to play this game about, you know, you know, if Biden wins and all this kind of stuff, I think he will win. If I'm wrong, so be it. If you think this is wildly irresponsible of me, uh, so be it. Um, you know, the, the decision desk HQ called the election. I trust those guys. And as I write about in today's G file, I am just fed up with people who get really mad about um, bull? Uh, you know this the stuff where this Senator Kramer guy went after my friend and frequent remnant guest Chris Steyerwald, um and said he should be fired from Fox because he was on the decision desk that called Arizona. Um, you know, and this is just you know one tiny slice of it, but it pisses me off because Chris is an honorable dude. You know, of all the people who have weathered um, the last four years, um, Chris is in the top of people I admire for how he's managed to remain professional 
and decent amidst enormous pressures from all different sides uh, to sort of bend to political pressure. And um, in this idea, so like one, all right, so it's one, it's personal, but two, take Chris Starwall out of it or, or, or Arnon Michigan or any of those people. The idea that the, that is all over the place on Twitter, right? All over the place in the usual uh, Trump booster corners. The idea that somehow it was evil or treasonous or part of a coup um, for Fox to call Arizona is such unmitigated bovine excrement. Um, nothing that the Fox News decision desk, look, I'm totally open to the argument that they did it prematurely. That's fine. People can debate that all they like. Um, you know, I actually think Fox got themselves into a little bit of a mess with how early they did it because they invited so much political criticism, which I think is largely unwarranted, but that's a different issue. They invited so much political criticism and now they're, at least as of me, as of this recording, they're in this position that if they call Nevada, I'm sorry, Nevada, or, um, or even Pennsylvania, um, or, or Georgia, not well, Georgia, they shouldn't, but you know, if they call, if they, if they had good reason to call Arizona, um, on the night of, on election night, they have plenty of reason to call Nevada right now. But the problem is, is if they call Nevada now, uh, they're calling the election for Trump. I mean, for Biden. And I suspect that that's, you know, something they kind of don't want to do until they've got everything lined up. And maybe that's an argument in some sort of post-mortem seminar for why they should have waited a little longer on Arizona if it was going to get to be this close, arguing for, you know, delaying that announcement is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. What's not reasonable is this garbage that is coming from all sides that says that somehow this decision by Fox cost Trump something, cost Trump the election. I mean, there are actually people out there who have these elaborate theories. Some blue checkmark people have these elaborate theories about how this coordinated effort for um, uh, robbing uh, Trump of his victory and stealing the election and yada, yada, yada. And it's all nonsense. They could have called the entire election for Trump on election night, and it wouldn't affect a single vote, right? They didn't make any of these calls until the polls close. So the idea that somehow there is this sort of, you know, um, Midas touch thing that happens that by declaring or projecting a winner, you are actually affecting the unfolding of reality to come in terms of the counting of votes is just otherworldly nonsense. I mean, at least what I think is largely a really stupid argument that Trump is floating and a bunch of his you know, usual cheerleaders are floating, that the um, inaccurate polls before the election were suppression polls. Um, I think that's a really dumb argument if the argument is that it was done deliberately to suppress the vote um, because those polling errors, and they were real, and I wrote about that on Wednesday and I ate some of the crow that I felt I needed to eat on it. And I think a lot of the responses from readers were pretty uncharitable and unfair and wrong. But you know, one of the things when you're eating crow is you just let it go. So I'm not going to get into big fights with everybody. I responded, I think, to one or two. Um, but I think there's a lot of 
unfairness and all that. Um, but regardless, you can at least make the argument that bad poll numbers do affect the vote before an election. People say, oh, he has no chance to win, yada, yada, yada. That's fine. And that's a legitimate argument. But the idea that these polls were all coordinated um, as part of a mass elite effort that Fox was in on, um, and not only Fox, but that the pollsters who work for Trump and work for countless Republican campaigns, they were all in on because we know that internal Republican and Democratic polling, including Trump polling, corresponded pretty well to most of these public polls and sometimes were worse. So, I mean, the explanation can't be a conspiracy so vast. It has to be that there is something, and I think this is a really fascinating subject and worth getting some pollsters on the, on the podcast to talk about. There's something about Trump, the way he galvanizes his supporters, the way he cuts across normal demographics, the way he probably elicits this shy Trump thing, which I, it's one of the things I said I was probably wrong to be as critical of. Um, that's all interesting, but it seems to me that these are systemic problems with polling. They are not proof that there is some pentaveret where the heads of Gallup and the New York Times Siena poll and Fox News polling and all the pollsters who work for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they get together with you know, Colonel Sanders and the Egg Council at the, you know, the Pentaveret meeting in the Meadows to come up with fake polling um, in order to depress Trump's voters who all insist that they don't believe the polls in the first place. I mean, the people we've been hearing from all along about how these polls are fake um, are, we're now being told that they were suppressed by these polls. And look, again, I think it's possible some people were influenced, overly influenced by incorrect polling. I just don't think it's conspiracy theory, but at least there's some merit to some of that. This stuff about how calling Arizona somehow factors into whether or not Trump lost is just other world, otherworldly magical thinking nonsense. And, um, the fact that I see so many people, including you know, a sitting U.S. senator, buying into this garbage is, is maddening to me. Um, and it's, it's much like all of this you know, beer muscle nonsense that's all over the place on Twitter right now of, you know, that started yesterday when uh, uh, Eric and Don Jr. Trump um, insisted that the you know, the 2024 contenders come out and defend their father and fight for their father and fight for his victory. And of course, Tom Cotton came out of the gate and then a bunch of other people came out of the gate. I think it's a little unfair to throw Nikki Haley in there because her statement was not, um, you know, don't, it wasn't about how this election is being stolen. And that of course got Matt Gates, um, the, the Playmobil guy from Florida, um, all mad about how Nikki was eulogizing Trump rather than fighting for him the way that Matt Gates is fighting for him. And I don't know what these people mean by fighting for him. I mean, are they boldly tweeting? Are they coming out forthrightly with, with the most courageous tweets possible supporting the president and talking about how, you know, the election is being stolen? Um, you know, 
the, first of all, the election's not being stolen, and we'll come to that in a second. But those tweets won't change that fact. They won't change the counting. They won't change the final tally. They have nothing to do with reality. It's all kabuki theater or shadow puppet theater where people think the images on the wall are the real thing, and they're not. The vote is going to be whatever the vote is going to be. Sure, there might be some court challenges about some batch of votes that came in after Election Day but were postmarked before in Pennsylvania, yada, yada, yada. Um, but those votes, at least by my la last time I read up on this, don't even matter because in Pennsylvania, they sequestered those votes and Biden's lead is, uh, it doesn't take them into account um, in the first place. So that's sort of a dry hole anyway. But the vote's going to be the vote. You know, I mean, it's like saying that the guys in the control booth, uh, you know, announcing the football game, which the players cannot hear the color commentary, are somehow affecting the final score of the game if they call something wrong. Never mind that no one, at least in the case of the Fox News decision desk as of yet, uh, called anything wrong, at least about this Arizona thing. And so you have you have all, it, it's this bizarre thing, you know, and I write about this in the G file. I, I saved it for the end because I was too angry when I started it and I wanted to be sort of more forward looking, but you have these people, um, who are, I think they've been infected with a kind of Trump dementia about some of this stuff, where if you go back and you listen to Trump, um, in his election night, uh, comments, which I thought were definitionally outrageous, unpatriotic, and, and, and borderline impeachable, if not impeachable. Um, he, he has this thing where you can hear it in his voice where he says, we were getting ready to celebrate. We were planning on, you know, our victory. We were, we were ready to have, you know, this big celebration because we had this wonderful victory. And then it just started changing. And he says it in this way that he thinks it's really outrageous that the facts went a different direction than the way he was feeling about things. And I mean, I know that feeling, you know, you bet a lot of money on a football game or something, and then all of a sudden you see your team fumble on the other side, get the ball, and you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. And I know that, you know, that part of our, you know, sort of lizard brain programming, we feel like that's unfair, that the storyline has gone a way that we didn't want. And I think a lot of people watching on election night on both the right and the left got that feeling a bunch of times. But that's not a reason to then go on and say, you know, the football game was fixed or to say that the votes they're counting are fraudulent. Um, they're not fraudulent. There is no fraud. I mean, look, again, there could be some minor episode somewhere. I haven't been following this with laser-like attention, but Virtually everything that people throw up there that all for the last three days as proof, including the stuff that Bill Bennett, a guy, you know, I've loved for 20 years, but has behaved so disappointingly during the Trump era and was on special report, just floating Twitter garbage as if it was proof of something, some conspiracy. Um, you know, you have Newt Gingrich, a guy my wife worked for for years and I've always been friendly with going out there. And saying, you know, tweeting, it's now clear that the Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania um, elections are being stolen by the Democrats. It is not clear. There has been nothing like the kind of mass fraud that would be required 
to steal these races. I mean, like with all conspiracy theories, one of the first things you've got to do is ask, how would it be possible? How would it be possible that all of these people um, knew which precincts, where and when to manufacture thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of fake, untraceable, um, un, you know, unexposable fake ballots? And you have to ask, why would Democrats, being so capable of doing this, turn this into such a cliffhanger in the first place? And you also have to ask, if the Democrats were so good at this and so determined to steal all of this, maybe um, they would have also rigged the election in favor of all the down-ballot Democrats who lost, right? I mean, the Republicans didn't, flip, Republicans didn't lose a single seat in Texas. They gained seats in the House. Um, most of the senators held on to their seats, which was, you know, shocking, including Susan Collins. If the Democrats were going around, going around surgically and brilliantly manufacturing fraudulent ballots in just the places they needed to harsh, um, you know, Donald Trump's feel expectations of victory on election night, why wouldn't they go all the way with this and really give Biden a victory? Really give Biden, you know, a, a Senate and a House that he could, you know, do all of these things with. Because they can't. They don't know how to do that. They can't do that. The idea that you could pull this off, it's not quite as dumb as like 9-11 trutherism. Um, but at least 9-11 trutherism, you know, that at least gets to, you know, what is it called? Theodicy? The, you know, these questions about why God allows terrible evil things to happen. And there is something that happens to people's brains, that kind of stuff that I'm a little more forgiving of, even though I think it's pernicious nonsense. But this is just so stupid. And to have so many Republicans and so many commentators going out there and saying that the election's being stolen when it's not being stolen, and in fact, going out and saying that it's being stolen so they can steal the election. That's what Donald Trump is trying to do. We knew for months, at least weeks, that the early votes, ever since Donald Trump started to tell his voters that um, don't vote by mail, and, except in Florida, right? That's the one place he said you can do it. Um, uh, because voting by mail is, is corrupt and all this kind of stuff. Vote on election day. He said it. I thought it was a dumb thing to say. Whatever. But we knew there's all this talk about the red shift and the blue shift and the blue mirage and the red mirage. We knew this was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen. That in states where they counted the early and absentee votes early, Biden was going to have a big lead because Democrats, we knew this, um, and we knew it in part from polling, by the way, but we also knew it from voter registration you know, records and all the rest. We knew that Democrats were wildly disproportionately voting early and by one means or another. And Republicans were wildly disproportionately waiting until election day to vote. And so in states where they tabulated Biden's vote before election day, everyone knew that Biden was going to have this artificial lead that was going to get uh, taken down or at least uh, uh, worked down as the election day totals came in. That's why in Ohio, where they run things competently, Biden had this big lead for a big chunk of the night and everyone was like, oh my God. And then by the end of the night, Trump ran away with it because on election day voting, uh, he just overwhelmed the Biden vote. Totally fair. No one started screaming, oh my gosh, Trump is stealing the election. These late ballot, these late votes coming in are fraudulent or anything like that. 
But then when the process was flipped on its head and states, largely because of jackass Republican legislatures that wanted to play games with this stuff, um, refused to let them pl- you know, count votes early, um, votes that came in early, allow them to count, count them early. You had election day tallies coming in first on election night, and they were wildly, as expected, very heavily favorable for Trump. And then Trump, because he gets the sads um, in the middle of the night on election night, that uh, as they start counting the actual absentee votes um, or the early votes that are going to be pro-Biden, he says, no, 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 let's just stop the voting now. And that's a lie, right? He's not talking about stopping voting. He's talking about stopping the counting of votes. And I, you know, and I know lots of people are tired of all this. They don't want to hear all this again. I just wanted to be on the record about it. I think the people who are aiding and abetting in this stuff should be ashamed of themselves. I think the people who are calling for, you know, using military, you know, this Claremont Institute, you know, I I like those guys. I've liked those guys for years. I've written for the Claremont Review, but the American Mind and the Claremont Institute put out this ridiculous statement um, about total war and, you know, purging the weak sisters from conservatism as if they have the power, the authority, or the ability to do any of that crap, um, if they don't go 100% in, in supporting Trump's, you know, effort to, you know, save, you know, save democracy, which, you know, really means stealing the election. Um, this is nonsense, you know, and I like Sorab personally, but some of his tweets are just so over the top about this stuff. And there's this really weird thing, just because Sorab reminded me of it. It is absolutely true, absolutely true, that Democrats um, particularly led by Hillary Clinton, floated all sorts of conspiracy theories and all sorts of paranoid stuff about Trump being a Russian pawn and all of that. And it is absolutely true that Trump's defenders have the better part, not perfect, but the better part of the argument saying that stuff was a conspiracy theory that wasn't proven and it was outrageous for them to do it. And now many of those same people are saying that they get to traffic in conspiracy theories and outlandish misinterpretations of reality because the Democrats did it and now it's our turn. And this gets to the heart of, you know, my problem with how so many conservatives have responded in the Trump era. They have done things that just blow up their credibility because basically it's this Alinsky envy nonsense, accuse the other side of doing the worst things conceivable. And then when it's politically advantageous for you to do it, you all of a sudden say, well, since they do it, we get to do it too. That's sort of the that the political and rhetorical anatomy of Trumpism um, that has infected so much of conservatism. Um, and so anyway, look, there, may be, there might be some fraud out there. It, I guarantee you, if there is, it is isolated and small in the sense that's the only kind of fraud you can really get away with. And if the Trump campaign comes up with any evidence for it, you know what they should do. They should go into a court of law and have their lawyers swear under oath that they believe that their evidence is credible and argue it out in front of a judge. That's what you do. You don't do this just ridiculous crap that people are talking about now about having the electors reject the, the vote totals um, if they're, uh, because they, you know, the state legislature, you know, this Mark Levin idea, which I think is nonsense, that uh, and in, and Hugh Hewitt, to his credit, agrees that it's a crazy idea. 
that basically that the the Republican state legislatures should ignore what the actual vote tallies in their states, often tallied by Republicans, like in Georgia. Um, you know, the Republican Secretary of State, these are Republican-run governments in a lot of these places. Regardless, this idea that somehow the state legislature should ignore the final votes if they show Trump losing and just vote to elect Trump anyway. Now, I mean, just think for two seconds if in 2016, and David and Sarah have already made this point, but it's a good one. Just imagine if in 2016, people said, hey, you know, these Michigan totals, well, you know, look, I mean, we know that Putin was on the side of Trump and we knew that they took out these Facebook things and they did this, these voter suppression tweets and Lord knows what else. Um, you know, and we know that Hillary actually won the popular vote, which Trump has never done. And that's a much more compelling argument than suppression polls or any of that stuff. Um, but so what if in 2016 they said, hey, look, you know, she won the popular vote. Uh, Russian medal, Russia medal, Trump is sketchy. We think he cheated, blah, 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 blah. We can't really prove it, but we know it in our hearts to be true. And we think the Michigan state legislature should simply allot um, its electors to Hillary instead of Trump, even though Trump won the popular vote. Can you imagine what all of the people floating this incredibly stupid idea would say under those circumstances about how this was literally? Um, you know, an, uh, a coup, even though Hillary had won the popular vote, they'd say, you don't understand the electoral college, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's what they're proposing here. And they're proposing it on nothing but Twitter means and innuendo and hurt feelings about how it can't really be true that Trump won. I mean, there's some, there's a writer at the Federalist, old friend of mine, um, who wrote, uh, that, it's just bizarre or inconceivable or something like that to imagine that Republicans might split their ticket and not vote for Donald Trump, but vote for down ballot Republicans. I don't know how this could be possibly inconceivable when we've been talking about Donald Trump losing the support of former Trump voters and former Republicans in the suburbs. Lots of people voted. It, it makes sense that lots of people would vote for. Um, Republican senators and Republican House members, but not for Donald Trump, right? I mean, that is the that is one of the stories going into this election. Um, I'm surprised there wasn't more of it, but there was, but that there was any of it. I, well, I don't know why that should be surprising to people, and yet you find it all over the place. Um, so I think people are losing their minds. Um, I think that people who saw what Trump has said and has tweeted over the last 48 hours and think it is their patriotic duty to support him are either brainwashed or they have a deeply unpatriotic commitment to the rule of law and to democracy. And I would like to think that a lot of them are just confused. And I think a lot of them are confused and they don't really know what they're doing, but a bunch of them do know what they're doing. And it's grotesque. And, you know, I think Ben Sass and Mitt Romney and Larry Hogan and Chris Christie and, you know, a bunch of people I have pretty serious disagreements with deserve praise and recognition for not going along with it. And I'm glad that Kevin McCarthy walked back his idiotic stuff about how the election was won by Donald Trump. And I'm glad that these people are realizing that they backed the wrong play 
and they should be allowed to do it. Um, but I don't think there's anything I could ever, I don't think it's, you can ever forgive, you know, Donald Trump for playing this the way he has. Um, and for the people like Rudy Giuliani, who are just, they're going to, they're going to ride this horse straight into the ground. And we're going to have this stupid, the election was stolen conspiracy, conspiracy theory crap to contend with for the next four years. It's going to be sort of Benghazi, 9-11 trutherism, Hillary's emails, Hunter Biden, all wrapped up in this crazy, stupid narrative for a really long time. And, um, and it just further erodes faith and confidence in our country, in our institutions, in our processes, and further emboldens people to think that um, if you can get away with something, uh, then you should be able to do it regardless of whether it's wrong or right. It's what Trump is trying to do when he's trying to steal the election. And the people who are celebrating him for it and joining him on the parapets, I think, are doing an incredible disservice. And I find it just sad. Um, all right. I'm sorry. I know I ranted for a while there. Um, people get mad at me for staying on one topic too long. So I apologize, but I want to enjoy my weekend and I want to get that out of my system. What else to talk about? Um, I really had a fantastic time talking to Razib, um, Khan about dog genetics and canine genetics. And I think that stuff is just straight up fascinating. You know, um, we're kind of in a holding pattern, Cass Sunstein and I, about doing this dog book. Um, but I've spent a big chunk of the year, I've spent a big chunk of the last 20 years writing and um, talking about dogs. And, you know, it's not just my Twitter feed. You know, my basic view of dogs, which I've talked about before here, I think, I can't really remember, is that uh, um, dogs are really the only animal in the whole range of animals other than horrible intestinal parasites and other weird things like that. Um, they're the only animal that legitimately chose us as much as we chose it. And, um, this new paper from science that came out that we talked about a bunch on the podcast, um, only further confirms this, which, you know, I think scientists have generally known this story for, for a good long time, which is that we basically co-evolved with dogs over the last 15 to 25,000 years. I know there's all sorts of arguments about the dating of all of this stuff. Um, we were both sort of mid-level predators. Um, and working together with dogs, we, you know, first wolves, but then we turned them into dogs. We moved our way up the, the food chain. And um, I think you can overstate it about, you know, whether or not um, we ever would have evolved out of the muck if it hadn't been for our work with dogs and our cooperation with dogs, but that's okay. It doesn't really change the fact that dogs are awesome. They are brimming with, with pure doggy goodness. Um, and you know, the fact the, the the more we learn about dogs, you know, they do these MRIs now and there used to be this argument, which I've written about a bunch people like, um, this guy, Budiansky, who's a great writer and he writes all sorts of interesting things. I just remember being pissed off when he wrote this thing about how dogs are social parasites and that they don't actually, they basically don't actually love us. They're just con con artists. And in the last few years, they've now done these, um, uh, there's this work that they do down in, um, Atlanta, 
um, at uh, Emory where they can do MRIs of, of doggy brains or CAT scans or whatever. And it's hard. You got to get a dog to sit still for these things. Um, and it turns out that what you suspected to be true is true. Dogs love us. They love their owners. We can find the parts of the brain that light up um, that suggest happiness. I mean, obviously, their conception of love is different than ours. Um, and obviously, I think it's, it's easy to concede the fact that their definition of love is probably closer to the, the center of their brain that measures love is closer to the part of their brain that enjoys food than it might be for, you know, human beings. But um, they can actually measure the actual happiness of a dog when it sees it's human, um, you know, and it's not necessarily associated just with getting fed. Um, it is not manipulative. They really love us. And, you know, I mean, the old joke um, about how, you know, how do you tell who loves you more, your wife or your dog, lock them both in the trunk of your car for an hour and then, you know, open it up and you can tell which one's happy to see you. Now, I don't condone any of this, um, but I've always thought that was funny. And I think it gets at a sort of a deeper truth. And, you know, dogs are our, our, our wingmen or, you know, not to be gendered about it, our, 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 our wing beasts. And um, they want to be with humans in ways other animals don't. I mean, you can teach a horse to want to be around its human, and I guess, because it finds reassurance and it knows it's human and all that kind of stuff. And cats, let's just say their, their ability to maintain ambivalence about their humans is strong. Um, but I'm sure that they can learn that too. But they're not born with it the way dogs are. Dogs are born to want to be able to communicate and work with humans in ways that no other animal is. And, you know, you got to trick hawks, you got to trick um, all these other animals or break them or something or train them uh, to want to work with humans. And all you got to do for the vast majority of dogs is just love them and then they'll love you back. And some are not very easy to teach tricks to. I defy the person. I, 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 if anybody out there owns a basset hound and has taught them to chase a Frisbee, I very much would like to see the video. Um, but, you know, dogs have this ability to read our facial expressions. You don't have to teach them words. They can read our body language and we can read theirs. And there's reason to believe that we, we evolved this ability, you know, a long time ago because the groups that cooperated not only amongst themselves this is a point Darwin makes at great length, but the groups that cooperated with dogs were more likely to survive and pass on their genes. And I just think that's a wonderful, remarkable thing. And I think it puts in context why, look, I think animal cruelty is terrible in every regard. I'm not a vegetarian, I'm not a vegan, and I'm not necessarily a really an animal rights person. I'm more of a, we have, I don't think animals have rights so much as that we have obligations to animals. And, you know, I think that, you know, I would ban, you know, elephant hunting and all these kinds of things. If particularly if I thought elephant hunting was the banning elephant hunting would work and would actually protect the species. There are argue, there are credible arguments that actually regulating that stuff makes more sense. And I'm open to the arguments, but I personally find the idea of shooting one of those things, um, for some ivory or some trophy or, or a picture to be repugnant, kill all the deer you want. I mean, don't be cruel to them, but 
you know, hunting deer, I think is fine. Even hunting doll sheep is fine. I'm open to the idea of hunting bear. I personally couldn't do it. Um, but it just, the point is, is that dogs are different. And, you know, the, the, the dog markets in China and, 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 and South Korea, to the extent they're still around, I mean, I know they're still around in China. I think they're being phased out in South Korea. They're repugnant because we're taking these creatures that actually evolved to be our friends and companions and we're treating them miserably. It's not really just, I mean, I find eating dog, which Barack Obama did, by the way, I find eating dog to be grotesque and I would never do it. But at the very least, treating dogs humanely before you turn them into food would be a different thing. But they're treated cruelly and then they're turned into food. And I, I think that's, that's indefensible in a way that is more indefensible than the maltreatment of a lot of other animals, even though I'm against that too. What else? Um, I talked to um, my buddy Jim Garrity this week about the election. And um, we had an interesting conversation about um, this point that I'm, you know, I think a lot about, about um, that I worry about in terms of, I'm very much in favor of reaching out to working class people, doing more for working class people. I think that, you know, the stuff that the, the much derided reformacons were trying to do in the two thousands and got mocked for it by all of the people who are now saying we must reform the Republican party into this multi-ethnic, um, working class workers party, uh, you know, you know, because Trump, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they scorned, you know, serious public policy proposals about, um, you know, figuring out a way to encourage work, expanding EITC, you know, Michael Strain, my colleague at AEI has all this work about like helping people move to where there are job markets and, you know, fixing some of the, um, the crazy disincentives that are embedded in local welfare systems that keep you in one place. Um, there are all sorts of things that could be done that are consistent with Reaganite principles that a lot of folks, you know, in sort of the Wall Street Journal slash New York uh, slash talk radio crowd thought was too heretical to pure Reaganism and, and, and crapped on quite a bit. And my view has been for a while, I've talked about this a bunch on the podcast, if only more people listen to people like Yuval and Michael Strain and Ramesh and and, and Jim Pethokoukas and all those guys and people like Scott Winship and whoever, um, if they had listened to them and actually done some of the things that would help working class and not just white working class, but working class people of, of all races, um, maybe we wouldn't have had the, the buildup of populism that we got. Um, but the problem is, is that if you're going to do this reach out to um, the working class voter stuff, it's, it's gotta be with policy proposals, at least by my lights, if the Republicans are going to do it, that will actually work, right? I mean, this is not something I talked a lot about with, with Jim and I don't want to just repeat that conversation, but this is one of my big problems with a lot of even the really smart guys who are doing this, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, what is it that Rubio calls it? Compassion, a capitalism of the heart or compassionate capitalism. And 
or the, the, the sort of new industrial policy people and some of the stuff that Orrin Cass does. And, um, you know, the, a, lot of the, a lot of these ideas are smart and are at least are defensible and worth debating and all of that. But one of the things, and I, I think I brought this up when I had Orrin Cass on the podcast, um, one of my problems with this stuff is that, you know, I'm a Hayekian, been a Hayekian for a very long time about, you know, not just economic issues, but on sort of a whole bunch of sort of questions about how culture and society work. And, you know, one of the best things that Hayek ever wrote was this essay about the knowledge problem, um, uses of knowledge in a free society. I can't remember exactly what, it's, what the, everyone calls it the knowledge problem essay. And I think it's in constitutional liberty. And, you know, his point in that was that bureaucrats, planners, whatever you want to call them, um, just can't have enough information to plan um, economic policy across a vast, complex, free society. And um, I'm sorry, I got dry mouth because I was smoking a cigar today, um, but only one because I'm trying to cut down. And one of the things I'm using to cut down is Lucy. Okay, I am serious. I am trying to cut back on the cigars. Um, I just know that long term, you can't do it as much as I do it. And um, um, and one of the things that I'm using to help me with that is Lucy. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Research and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. I'm very much a wintergreen kind of gum guy. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine and cherry ice flavor. Each and every flavor actually tastes great, and it's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, or even in the gym. So. It's 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes. Unplug your vape. Throw out your dip and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. And Remnant listeners, go to lucy.co, that's lucy.co, and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code DINGO at checkout. Also, I have to read this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. And that's true. Lucy.co and be sure to use the promo code DINGO. Okay, so, um, but in the knowledge problem essay, you know, his point wasn't that liberal economic planners or progressive economic planners or even that Marxist economic planners um, don't have enough information um, to be able to orchestrate all of the variables around a vast society. His point was about planners in general. And um, I could agree conceivably with a lot of the aims of the new sort of industrial policy 
guys emerging on the right. Well, let's just say I agree with all of the ends that they want. I still have to be persuaded, you know, that they have the means to pull it off. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that liberal and progressive social planners have wanted to do that I think everybody kind of agrees with, at least in principle, right? We want everyone to get a great education. We want everyone to uh, have decent housing. We want everyone to live in safe communities. We want everyone to have good health care, right? I, I, you know, liberals think that conservatives don't believe that. But the reality is, is that, you know, virtually every conservative I know thinks those would be good things, right? So the question for a lot of public policy stuff was never about the ends, right? I don't, I don't know any conservative over the last 25 years, you know, 30 years, because I was doing egg, think tank eggheadery long before I was doing, you know, journalism stuff. Um, I've never met a conservative who didn't think that their position was good for the working class or who didn't want to help the working class. You could get some people who would say, hey, look, some of these jobs that are in the working class, they're not, there's not a good future for those jobs. And that maybe it's worth letting go of textile jobs or, you know, historically sweatshop jobs because um, that's not the highest, best use of our labor force and our citizens. Maybe we should want something more for them. And you, or same thing with coal mining, which is a brutal job, right? So there could be some people, there have been some people on the right who've said, you know, it's okay that we're outsourcing these jobs or we're replacing these jobs with automation because the replacement will be better than those jobs. And totally understandable that the people who had those jobs, particularly late in life, who couldn't retrain and couldn't get better jobs, would be really pissed off by that kind of stuff. But the argument was never a, ha-ha, we're going to screw the working class. The argument was, um, this is better on net for more people to pursue these economic policies because it'll make more working class people better off in the long run. It'll get a lot more of them out of these working class jobs into higher level jobs in the economy and that kind of thing, right? And, and perfectly fine arguments about trade and automation and all of these things are to be had. My only point here is, is that the conservatives never wanted to screw, you know, people on the bottom half of the economic distribution or the people who had brutal factory jobs and all these kinds of things. They just had um, a theory, which I think is largely correct, about how a, a robust and dynamic and free capitalistic free market economy over the long haul is better for people, including those people who lose their jobs, or at least for their kids, than the alternative. But, okay, so the second part of the point is part of that worldview also says that even if you don't like what the market is producing at any given moment, you're still not smart enough to engineer things to get better results than the market. Now, obviously at the margins and specific cases and some public health things, you probably can do things that are smarter than the market, right? I mean, like um, getting, you know, getting the vaccine out as quickly as possible deserves some government role and all that kind of stuff. And, um, 
you can come up with scenarios where at the margins, there's a role for the state to sort of goose or guide the market, banning child labor and all that kind of stuff. You can have those arguments. But the, 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 the fundamental fallacy that the left, um, from you know, the sort of free market Hayekian perspective is, the, the fundamental problem with the sincere, well-intentioned left wasn't that their ends were necessarily bad, at least not in a lot of cases, but that they couldn't achieve their ends. You know, I, I, my friend Ron Bailey, who's been on this podcast now, he used to say to me when I was, uh, you know, in my 20s, and we used to have conversations about all this kind of stuff, and I learned so much from Ron. Ron used to say to me, look, Jonah, if, if socialism worked, I'd probably be a socialist. Now, I'm not sure that I would be, but I'd be much softer on socialism if I thought the record showed that it works, right? That it really works, right? That it does actually lift everybody out of poverty, that it doesn't immiserate people, that it doesn't throw a wet blanket on innovation and economic growth and productivity, these things that most help people, you know, down the economic ladder. If I thought that stuff wouldn't happen, I'd be more socialist. The, the critique from, you know, the, the right wasn't about, you know, the, the goals. The critique was that you just can't have enough information. I mean, you think, I mean, I don't want to keep, I keep coming back to eye pencil on this thing, but if you just think about all of the information that goes into the price of a loaf of bread, right? Prices are signals and they're incentives. And in the price of a loaf of bread, there is information embedded in there about um, weather patterns and climate systems in the South Atlantic. There, are, there is information in there affecting the price of wheat that has to do with gas prices in the Midwest and also petroleum prices in the, mid, in, in the Middle East because of fertilizer. Um, it has, there's, there's information in there about the fact that there are now millions of people who've switched to low-carb diets and they're not willing to buy bread. There has, there's information in there about uh, wages. There's just, it, just so much information that gets conveyed, like in electrical impulses through the prices of commodities that come together for a factory or for a company to bake a price of bread and say it's going to cost $2.58. And the idea that some Rexford Tugwell guy or some Paul Krugman guy in the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce or in the Department of, of you know, uh, pan-ethnic worker solidarity improvement, whatever, is going to have enough data, even with computers, enough data at their fingertips to come up with the price of a loaf of bread better than what the market can come up with is lunacy. It's just not true. Just, it's just, just not true. And the smartest liberal economists understand this point perfectly well, which is why they are not socialists. That's why they think that you can, you can tweak the market more than, than I do, but they understand the importance of markets simply as signaling mechanisms of nothing else. And the idea that just because I'm some post-liberal Catholic integralist who has this idea about national solidarity and 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 uh, you know the evils of inequal income inequality and the glories and importance of work and all of these things that somehow 
because my intentions are better than the left's, I now all of a sudden access to better data streams and more information. That's, that's the thing I can't get over. And so I worry about the, and this is what I was talking to Garrity about, is that because that stuff is so hard and no one has come up with a great sort of alternative to market systems to figure out how to set prices um, for commodities, for finished goods, for labor and all these kinds of things, what you end up getting is frustrated right of center or, you know, social solidarity, you know, uh, workers party people, they get into power and they're like, look, this stuff is too hard. We can't figure out the right policies. What we'll do instead is just cut workers an extra check. And we'll do the exact same thing that the left wanted to do for all these years. We'll just call it something that, 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 that pings our right wing sweet tooth. And um, I'm just not convinced that they've figured out the secret sauce any better than the left has in figuring out the secret sauce about how to outthink the market. And, you know, that's why, and I'll just close with this. I mean, I wanted to talk about some really dumb thing that Ben Dominic wrote about me, um, but I'll get to it another time, I guess, or I'll just leave it alone. Very unclear as to why he's got such a weird hard-on for me. But... um, uh, you know, in, I wrote about this in Suicide of the West. You know, there are these two different stories about the the goose that lays the golden egg. And in one story, um, the there's a couple, right? I could be interchanging the stories by or alternating the stories by accident. That's fine. They're both from the 15th and 16th century. In one version, uh, there's this this farmer who the goose comes into his life. He starts laying golden eggs. I guarantee you a golden egg from a goose in 1600 inflation adjusted dollars is very valuable, particularly one a day. And, but the guy gets greedy and that's supposed to be the moral of the story is greed. And, and I think that's part of it, but that's not the interesting part. The guy gets greedy and he demands that the goose give him two golden eggs a day. And the goose very politely says, I can't do that. I can only give you one a day. And the guy gets so mad, he strangles it. And in the other version of the story, I think it's this couple, and they use their reason and their intellect. And they deduce that this very polite, nice golden goose that came out of nowhere and is giving them a golden egg every day, they figure, aha, if the goose is laying a golden egg every day, it must have a big lump of gold inside. Um, So let's cut it open and check it and and get it. And now, again, the moral of the story is usually greed, and that's definitely part of it. But my point is that it's ingratitude. And, you know, rather than take this incredible gift that you, you did very little to earn, you just simply inherited out of the blue of a goose laying a golden egg, rather than take care of it and feed it and water it and protect it, um, you, you're ungrateful for it and you want more from it than it can offer. And in one version of the story, this arouses rage and anger in the form of ingratitude, which I think is very much like populism of both the left and the right. Um, and it kills the golden egg, it g- kills the golden goose, which of course, if you haven't figured it out now, is liberal democratic capitalism and the market economy and the rule of law and all the stuff I call the miracle. And in the other version of the story, the ingratitude doesn't manifest itself as rage or anger. It manifests itself in the arrogance of intellect is that they think that 
they're smarter than the market, that they can um, get more gold than the market can produce. And so in the process of proving themselves right, they kill it. And that was the story uh, around the world about various efforts to do hard socialism or hot socialism, as Friedrich Hayek called it. Um, it was one of the reasons why the Great Depression lasted so long is you had these guys in Washington who thought they were smarter than the market. They thought the market was dumb and that experts were smart and that they could outthink this stuff and come up with the prices for everything from gold to pork. Um, and they ended up keeping the economy in the doldrums for a decade. And, um, and you know, look, I'm a conservative. If I'm forced to choose between uh, bad um, right-wing economic planners and bad left-wing economic planners, I will choose the right-wing ones, but I don't think, I don't believe in that binary choice. And I'm open to sort of more socially conservative uh, economic policies, if they can achieve the things that they're claiming that they can achieve, you know, I'm, I'm like, Ramesh has convinced me about like, you know, child tax credits and doing more to get people to have more babies because babies are good. I'm, I'm, I'm open to a lot of that kind of stuff, but it needs to be simple. It needs to be clear. It needs to be grounded in human nature and the incentives that human nature responds to and not some sort of grandiose theory about how we're smarter than the market and we can outthink it. Because we can't. There's just too much information that the market can take into account invisibly than we can ever get in our little heads. And that's why, as I've long argued, the real argument of the 20th century wasn't between John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek. It was between John Dewey and Friedrich Hayek. And maybe I'll talk about that on another episode of The Remnant. But this one's over. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the reviews. Sorry for the rant at the beginning. Um, it's been a long week and I will see you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.